listening to a resource from Jambrew Anglican Church. We ask, Heavenly Father, now that you would speak to us, that as your spirit leads us, we might hear your voice and trust in you and know that following you is indeed the best life possible. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a great line in an old hymn that goes, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. We're not going to sing that one tonight, sorry. But it's a hymn that sort of describes God's people standing right on the side of the river, about to head into the promised land. And right there, they're at a bit of a milestone. And at that moment... They're getting all psyched up to go into God's land that he's given them, the promised land. God has made it really clear to them that they're going to be able to have that land and he's going to give it to them. And they need to trust in him. Now, the road's been bumpy up to that point, but they need to trust in him. The problem is it's taken them 40 years to get there. And that's because in that time they had not trusted God. 40 years from when they left Egypt to now be standing there on the side of the Jordan, the verge of Jordan, ready to cross. But as they do that, you can see why they might, to use the hymn writer's words, have anxious fears that they want to have subside. Uh, it's a bit scary because it's not like they're going to go into this promised land and the people who are living there saying, hey, why don't you take my house? Lovely to see you. Uh, it's going to be a bit bumpy. And they're going to conquest that land that God's going to give them. It sort of reminds me of those times in our own life when we're about to approach something all new and we can just be a little bit scared about it. Think back to that first day of school. For some of you, that's a relatively recent memory. For others of you, it may not be so recent. Uh, But you're just about to start something new. You're walking into the classroom for the first time. You've got no friends and no idea. You pause, or it might be the first day of a new job. You arrive to work with a chest full of new tools, or maybe a briefcase full of new pens, and you're ready to go, and you stop, and you pause as you're about to start something big and new. Or it might be the first time that you click your first newborn child into the baby seat as you drive home from the hospital when the family of two has now become a family of three and you have that moment of you you realise you're about to start something all very new and all a bit scary. Or maybe it's the day when the removalist arrives with all of your furniture into your new home in an all-new village or suburb and, and you know that it's time now for you to discover your neighbourhood and meet your neighbours. Or maybe it's the first day of retirement as you place the gold watch on your wrist and you prepare for endless rounds of playing golf or mining grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Might be the first day that you're placed into residential care as your loved ones hand you over to be looked after by a team that's equipped to provide geriatric care for your deteriorating body and mind. When we get those milestones, they help us to reflect. It's often at those milestones that we stop and we pause and we take stock of life and we consider who it is that we are and we think about who it is that we might even like to be. 
today is the first day of the rest of your life. Blah, blah, blah. Well, this weekend, as we have already heard from James, a group of us, nearly 25 of us, got together today to to sit around and and think about the future of our church. Uh, It's not like we've got a major moment, a major Jordan River that we're about to cross over and enter. But nonetheless, as we approach five years of this service being here on a Saturday night, it's, it's a timely moment for us to stop and to reflect upon the future. And that is indeed what we did. But what is it that we should think about the future? What should be our vision for the future? Well, it's maybe a little bit over the top to compare our situation with God's people crossing the Jordan, but there are some parallels. And to help us pick up some of those parallels, we can think about what was going on with God's people as they stood there at the Jordan River about to cross it. Right there, they were given a special message from God. And they were given this message in the so-called book of Deuteronomy. Now, the word Deuteronomy is just a nerdy word that stands for second law or second word. And it, it basically is the repeat of something that has been very important before because now they are there and they will be given a repeat of the Ten Commandments. The first time the Ten Commandments, I don't know, don't know if you realise this, but the Ten Commandments are written in the Bible twice. Uh, the firstly, they're written in Exodus chapter 20, which, if you know the book of Exodus, it starts off with baby Moses in the bulrushes, and then you get the whole Moses thing, and then the Exodus thing, and then that goes badly, and then they, they get the Red Sea, and they get out, and then they go, and they get the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. And they have been remarkably, miraculously rescued from their slavery by God. And now they are told at the mountain of God how it is that they should live as God's people. Unfortunately, they didn't really trust God. And so, as I said before, it took them 40 years to get to the point where all the descendants of those who were there at the original time were gathered to go into the new land. And it's right there that they get the Ten Commandments a second time. It's like, don't know if you, well, you weren't around 40 years ago when we all got them, so we're now going to give them to you again. And God, through Moses, brought them together. And we see this in the start of chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. We see that, verse 1, Moses called all the people of Israel together and said, Listen carefully, Israel. Hear the decrees and regulations I am giving you today, so you may learn them and obey them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Mount Sinai 40 years ago. The Lord did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive today. It's interesting. He's basically saying, you might think that those Ten Commandments is old news, that it's just for those people 40 years ago. But no, it's as much for you today as it was for them, because you are part of the same family. You are born into God's family. They were born into God's family. They are the living people of God, and they are at an absolutely massive milestone. And Moses tells them, listen, guys, I won't be going in there with you. Long story. But here I am, and I need to tell you what you've got to hear from God. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. 
Now, the point is that they did not become part of God's family by somehow working to please him. It wasn't like they were going for a job and they were doing everything they possibly could to impress their future boss or the HR department or whatever it is and say, I'm going to give you the best resume or the the best job interview or or I'm even just going to bribe you with money or something to try and get my job. Uh, It's not like that at all. They did not become part of God's family by somehow buttering him up to say, what can I do to be part of it? They were just born into God's family. They were members because they were born that way, which is an amazing privilege. It's an amazing honour and it's amazing grace. They are people who are already part of God's family. And as people with that security, with that grace, with that joy, they are now given these Ten Commandments. They are ready to receive them so that they will have a framework for life, so that they'll have a vision for the future, so they'll know what the good life really looks like. And God says, I'm not giving these to you so you'll try and keep them, so you'll impress me, so I'll like you. Uh Uh-uh. As my family, here is the vision. We need to understand that so that we can understand the Ten Commandments. You see, why is it that God gave them the commandments? Well, have a look, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. These are the commandments, decrees and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy, and you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey. And then all will go well with you and you'll have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Why did he give them the Ten Commandments? What was the purpose for him saying, here they are, one, two, three, four, five, six, why did he give them to you? It's because he wanted them to enjoy a long life. And verse 3, so that all will go well with you. So you want to have the best life possible as part of my family? You want to have the life that is truly blessed as being my children? Well, Shazam, Ten Commandments. There they are. And that was the gift that they had. These laws were there to set a vision for the best life. Is that what you would have thought that the Ten Commandments were for before you came into this room tonight? I wonder if you did. Most people, however, would say that the Ten Commandments are some sort of way in which you might please God and get into heaven. Have you heard that before? I've said this on so many occasions. I'll say it again because I don't get tired of saying it. But it's a really handy little diagnostic question for people's faith to say, If you were to die now and stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And if they say something like, well, I think I've kept most of the Ten Commandments, most of the time, mostly, sort of, or I've done this or I've done that, then it's kind of like, fail. It doesn't work that way. The Ten Commandments are not given to us so that we might have some sort of list of things that we can do to please God and to get accepted by him. It's like, no. I don't give rules to my kids so that they might become my kids. They get the rules because they are my kids and we want to live a life that works well together. That is what these laws do. They set a vision for the best life. And so with that in mind, 
We've just looked at chapter 6. Let's rewind back to chapter 5 and have a look at how these commandments applied to God's people back then. So chapter 5, verse 6 says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Uh, That's actually not the first commandment. It's kind of an introduction to the whole thing. But it's so important that we don't skim over that. He basically says, I am the God who saved you. Let's get this clear. You were dead and you needed saving. You were in a whole world of pain there as slaves inside Egypt and I rescued you. This is the context for all of this. It's all about grace. It's all about God's gift. It's all about what he has done. It's such a beautiful way to look at the Ten Commandments because so often we think, oh, it's all this big burden of law that I can't keep. But here we see it starting there with this beautiful picture of God's salvation for them. And he says, I am the Lord, your God, not a God, but your God. And so he gives them these things. Well, how do they go? Well, let's have a look at these Ten Commandments. Sometimes people will spend 10 weeks looking at the Ten Commandments. Well, we're going to spend about 10 minutes or so, or maybe a few so's, just to to race through them quickly and get the big picture of what the Ten Commandments are. Uh, The first one is, and this is in my words here, and you can fill them in on the blanks of the sheets of paper you received as you came in the door or you might have downloaded online. Uh, The first is, only follow the Lord. Only follow the Lord. So verse 7, you must have... You must not have any other God but me. They've got to be totally faithful to the Lord in the same way that the Lord is totally faithful to them. How could they live in a community of promise and yet place a bet both ways? How could they be God's people and yet flirt with these other fake gods around there? It's just not going to work. If that breaks down, if that relationship breaks down, the whole community breaks down. Well, secondly, they're not to make or worship any idols. Verse 8, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. In other words, what they must do is avoid creating anything that might turn the Lord into an object. They must not reduce the Lord to an object. It's funny, that's exactly what they'd done just under 40 years before that. It's so sad, it's almost funny, or it's so funny, it's almost sad that Moses is off talking to God and he comes back and what have they done? They've turned all their jewellery into a golden calf and said, we kind of want to be able to worship God by looking at something and bowing down to it. And it's like... Are you serious? Are you nuts? How can you be in the presence of God and stuff that up so spectacularly? But they did. 
And so they are told here in the Ten Commandments, don't reduce the Lord to an object. Don't make a mini-me Lord. Like, okay, well, here's my own little pocket Jesus that I can carry around with me. And, and, and No, don't do it. It's not how it works. God is a jealous God, and rightly so. Uh, you might think that being jealous is a bad thing. Well, if you are married to somebody and your spouse has an affair with someone else, it is right for you to feel jealousy. It's part of the package of faithfulness and breaking that faithfulness. Likewise with God. You might think, oh, hang on, how can God be jealous? Because jealousy is a bad thing. Uh-uh. We are to be faithful to God as he is faithful to us. And he is jealous. That's how much he loves us. He wants us to be faithful to him. Well, that leads us to the third commandment, verse 11. It says, don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Now, some people say, I mean, there's... there's Older translations say, do not lose the Lord, don't, do not use the Lord's name in vain, you know. And we sometimes think that means don't let God's word, name be turned into a swear word. Now we hear that quite a bit. There are some people in the world who the only thing, the only time they ever mention Jesus' name is when they're swearing. And I tell you what, if the only time that people used my name was when they were swearing at somebody, I reckon I wouldn't be a big fan of that. Oh, oh, Jody. It's like, really? Oh, oh, you Jody, you. It's like, really? You know, I wouldn't be a big fan of that. And you can see why using Jesus' name in that way, or God this or Jesus that, that's not a nice thing to do. But it's even more than that. To blaspheme, to you to misuse the name of God in this way. It's actually about rep- misrepresenting him. Ever heard someone sort of say, oh, watch out for so-and-so, he's got a bit of a bad name. That the name of a person is their character. Oh, she's got a bad name around these parts. It's about her character. If you misuse God's name, what are you doing? You're saying, oh, the Lord, he's not reliable, he's cruel, he doesn't actually care for his people, and he doesn't answer your prayers. And uh... The command was, don't misrepresent the Lord. You want to live in the best world possible as God's saved people? Don't misrepresent God's name. I mean, it's a no-brainer, but we've got to hear it there. Then the fourth commandment, verses 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day and by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your oxen, your donkeys, your other livestock, and any other foreigners living amongst you. All your male and female servants must rest as you do. Remember, you were once slaves in Egypt, never had a day off. But the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. Why were they told not to do any work on the seventh day of the week? 
it's because they are now no longer slaves. You thought about it that way. They are actually in a saved, redeemed community of God. And God says, you are not God. I am God. I rescued you. And I want you to take a break and reflect upon me and worship me and enjoy me. That is why they were told, take a rest day. Next, verse 16. Honour your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Uh, What is it saying here? It's saying that you need... The the, the children need to honour their parents. Number five, honour your parents. Now, the kids haven't gone out tonight. That's good. Because we want you to hear this commandment. You want to have the best life possible? Honour your parents. This is the way it should be in God's community. It's the best way to be. They were taught that the kids needed to live as God's people and they needed to know how to live as God's people and they needed to have that modelled by the parents and they needed to respect the parents. They weren't sent off to school to, to learn how to follow their parents. They were just in the community of life and they were seeing how they should honour their parents. Because if the kids didn't respect the parents and they didn't obey what they were taught, then the kids would do things that would damage the health of the community. Do you see that? It's going to be a bad community if all the kids disobey their parents all the time. Then we get to number six. In verse 17, a bit short of this one, you must not murder. It's not a whole lot of paragraphs like the other one. You must not murder. How can you have a healthy and safe community if people felt that it was okay to kill people in their extended family? It's like, you know, be grumpy at that person. Yeah, it was really annoying. I was, I was having a ride on my chariot and then they cut in on me and then gave me the finger and so I thought I'd just cut their head off. Right. Is that a happy community? No, not really. Not at all. It is important. Like, we, we take this for granted that there's a sanctity for human, of human life, that humans should not just be killed willy-nilly when you get around to it or because it seems good to you. This comes from the Bible. It comes from the one who created us. I can summarise those four words in two. <laughs> Don't murder. It's pretty simple. And then we move to number seven, which is also pretty short. And that is, you must not commit adultery. In other words, number seven, be faithful in marriage. I think that we have an innate feeling in our world that monogamy and faithfulness is a good thing. But I think many people in our world will also say that there's something pleasurable in having an affair. Even that word, affair, sounds so nice, doesn't it? We've got to have an affair. It's like, you know, it's adultery sounds a bit more intense. I'm going to commit adultery. It doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? But it's exactly what it is. And it is the thing that kills marriages and the things that kills communities. 
We've all experienced it in different ways. Uh, this kind of is not rocket science, what we've got here before us. But it's also a radical thought. That if God says that if you're married to somebody, don't for a second think, I wonder if it's time for me to have a fling. Because I can tell you what the answer is. Bzzzt. No, it's not. There's never a time to have a fling. The Lord has made it clear. Be faithful in marriage. You want to live the best life possible? Stick to your marriage. The next one, up to number eight. You must not steal. That also seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? But I don't think it's necessarily obvious. Because if you think there's some sort of way that you can get something in an easier way than earning it yourself, then it's pretty tempting. And it might be as simple as downloading something you don't have the rights to, or it might be as blatant as nicking someone else's car. You could try that as well. You're more likely to be caught for the second than the first one, and it's going to be more likely to be in the papers. But the point is that if your possessions are always at risk of being stolen by others in our community, in our covenant community of God's people, then I can tell you, you're not going to have a happy life. If all the time it's kind of like, where's my bag? Or where's my handbag? Or my wallet? Or my, my keys? Or always lock the car, every time, especially around those pesky Christians, because they're the worst. Ah, if that was the case, then we would not have a great community. It's so funny. I reckon every second week someone will say, oh, I left my handbag in the church. Can I get your key to unlock it? Anyone ever done that before to me? Yeah. Why? Because you trust each other. And one day we'll look after dinner. We'll come back. Everything will be neat. The guitars, the cameras. And we'll think, oh, made a bad mistake. But we trust each other because we believe that the best life is one where we don't steal from each other, where we respect each other's possessions, where we say it's your, your, yours is yours and what's mine is mine, that's okay. Then we get number nine. You must not testify falsely against your neighbour. It's talking specifically about when you're brought into a law court and then they, you say, you know, so tell me exactly what you saw. Well, you know, I put my hand on the Bible and, and tell you and, and this is all of that. When there is not truth in that, it is really, really bad. It's bad for our legal system. It's bad for lives when you hear people perjure themselves because they want to cover something up or because of some other reason. Basically, this is a really short one. Number nine, don't lie. When you say you're going to do something, do it. And when someone says, tell me about that incident where we're now in court talking about, what really happened? You say, oh, well, nothing really. You know, my nose is growing. Don't do that. That is not the Christian life. That is not the life. Finally, number 10, you must not cover your neighbour's wife. You must not cover your neighbour's house or land, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbour. I think this is one of those interesting laws because it's not really one that is necessarily obvious, this whole idea of coveting. Uh, for us, it's sort of flick, swiping through our Insta feed and saying, oh, I like that, or I like that, I'd be much happier if I had that. Or someone drives past and you say, I reckon if I had that kind of car, I'd be much better. Or if I was able to go on that sort of holiday, or I had that sort of job, or I had that sort of household or house or whatever it is, or that sort of ox or donkey, <laughs> whatever it is that you might cover, uh, you can see how this is also going to wreck a community. If you spend all your time saying, I want what that person's got, 
you're not going to be happy. The community's not going to be happy. It's like, be happy with your ox. It's a good ox. Don't go for the other ox. It's yours. In other words, number 10, be satisfied. Be satisfied. So God's people have said, you're about to head into the promised land that I'm giving you as people that I've rescued, as people of grace, and you're about to pop into this new land. What are you going to do? What is it going to be like? How is it going to be good for you? Pretty simple. Sit down, buckle up. Here are 10 commandments. This is the good life. So how do we as Christians look at this? Because we can easily get ourselves in a bit of a pickle if we read something in the Old Testament and then immediately draw a line directly from it to us today. It's the same with all sorts of things. Otherwise, we'd be here and there'd be blood splattered everywhere and priests and all the weird stuff and we'd be in a temple. Uh, clearly, we're not doing that and it would not be COVID safe. We, we are in a very different world because we are post the cross. We're living in the Christian life and even as our brother Trevor helped us understand last week from the book of Hebrews, the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus and everything is changed in so many ways. So we've got to read the Old Testament in that light. We've got to read the Ten Commandments in that particular light. And sometimes it's easier for us when Jesus himself refers to something in the Old Testament. When Jesus talked about the Ten Commandments, he actually showed the heart of the Ten Commandments. He said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfil it. And as he did that, he made some things look a little bit different. So, for example, in Matthew 12, he healed on the Sabbath. And there are a list of other times when we see similar things. The point is that Jesus said that the commandments were about love for one another and love for God. And he summarised all of them by quoting from a particular part of the Bible, which bit the book of Deuteronomy, which chapter? Chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus says, you might know these words, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength. That is what Jesus said, but he was quoting from the very bit that we're looking at right now. He understood the book of Deuteronomy pretty well, and he added to it something else. Because remember, they said to Jesus, well, we're going to try and trick him. Give us your favorite commandment, which is the one. And he says, well, the best one are these two. <laughs> love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on, all, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. So does that mean that the Ten Commandments are obsolete? Well, in a sense, yes, because we now live in a new covenant community. A new promise has been made to God, a new community. But in another sense, no, they are not obsolete. They still have currency. And I think as I was going through all ten of them just then, I think you're probably thinking, yeah, that still works. Yeah, I'm not like thinking that Jesus is going to say, you know what I said about murder? Change my mind. <laughs> Killing spree, come to church. No, not like that at all. The commandments still speak today. What we need to do is we need to read them through Christian goggles. And then we will see how it is that we can apply them to us today, even as they have been given to God's people back back then. 
So just a couple of little comments along the way. I'm going to skim through them, not going to go a fraction of the time. The first commandment tells us to follow God alone. It basically says that you've either got to be 100% for God or don't bother. That was true back then. It's still true today. Second commandment says don't worship idols. Does that still work today? Yes. May not be that you're cutting out something from a bit of wood and bowing down to it or melting down your jewellery to make an idol like a golden calf. But still, we need to realise that we've got to worship God the way that he tells us to and not to create ways that are substitute for that. We're not to domesticate God and say, my God isn't like that. My God is this, and I'm going to bow down to him like that because that's a bad thing to do. Third commandment says we must not misuse God's name. Don't use his name as a swear word, but don't misrepresent him in his world. Number four, rest and remember the Lord. You know, the, the, I think Jesus showed us that the strict six-day work, one-day rest pattern was not set in stone for the new covenant. But the principle still remains. Sometimes we're so enslaved by our materialism and our busyness and our pursuit of success that we don't ever stop down and, and stop for a moment and smell the roses that God has given us. And sometimes I think we think that if we don't take a day off, then the world will fall apart. I, I think it's a beautiful little joke. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful little joke that you can't survive unless you spend a third of your time effectively unconscious, sleeping. Now, what does that say to you? You're not king. God's ruling. He never sleeps. Take a rest. Remember the Lord. Fifth commandment says that kids need to honour their parents. They need to honour their parents. One of the reasons is so that they will listen to what their parents tell them about Jesus. Uh, the most important Sunday school teacher anybody has is their mum or dad. And if that's not working, maybe their grandparents. Grandparents, you'll certainly step you in as well. That we need kids to learn to obey their parents, to honour them so that they will know God. Sixth commandment says don't murder. And Jesus actually went one further than that. He said, oh, and don't hate anybody. Because when you hate someone, you're actually, it's as bad as murdering them. It's like, ooh. So when people say, oh, I've kept all the commandments because I haven't murdered anybody. Yeah, have you ever hated anybody? Yeah, but why is that might murder? Well, that's what Jesus said. Jesus raises the bar and he makes the love standard even greater than before. Seventh commandment is... Don't commit adultery. Faithfulness in marriage matters just as much today as it did back then. Promises matter. The Eighth Commandment says don't steal. It's pretty obvious. Ninth Commandment says keep our word to be truthful. The Tenth Commandment says that we've got to be satisfied with what we've got, which is sometimes harder than any of them, really. Are the Ten Commandments relevant to us today? Yes. <laughs> and when we read them and see them and experience them and realise that it's not that we've got the Ten Commandments so that we can impress God, so that he'll love us, so that he'll save us, so that he'll let us into his heaven, when we realise that the Ten Commandments are there as a gift, a beautiful gift from God to say, listen, I made you, I made your community 
and I want to give you the best life possible. Now, the problem is that we live in sin. Earlier on in our service, James read out the shorter version of the commandments, the Jesus, the ones that he said, love God, love one another. And what did we do straight after that? We said sorry to God. Rightly so. Whenever I hear the Ten Commandments or just the two great commandments, I think, ooh, ooh, yeah, that's me, ooh. And then I need to say sorry. We live in a community now that is saved by God. We are in God's family if we have trusted in him. But as saved people, we still sin. And so we pray that he would forgive us as his children. But we also long for the time when we will have the new community, the new Jerusalem, the new creation, when there will no longer be any temptation to do those things. Think about that for a moment. Think about living in an environment where you never, ever have hate for someone. You never, ever covet anybody else's stuff. You never, ever think about yourself, but you only want to worship Jesus. Imagine living in that world. That is the greatest vision we have of all. And the Ten Commandments give us a vision of how it is that things should be and we should try to have them. But beyond that, they give us a vision of what God's redeemed community looks like after the return of Christ and our going to be with him. And it is a beautiful picture. We need to see the commandments through gospel goggles. We need to see the commandments through the perspective of the gospel of Jesus. And when we do so, we have the richest possible vision of the future. A future where Jesus reigns over all the earth and every single part of us keeps all ten of those commandments naturally and joyfully and to God's great praise. Let me pray. Our great loving Father, we are so thankful that you have redeemed us, that you've called us by name, that you've taken us out of Egypt from slavery and brought us into the promised land, that you have saved us from death by sending Jesus to die for us. And we thank you that his powerful resurrection gives us hope that death has been killed for good. And so we wait for the return of Christ, knowing that in the meantime, these commandments give us a way of understanding how our relationships should be with you and with each other. And that we've got them as well as a, a taste of the future. May we long for that, Lord. May we share that with others. And may we live as people who are redeemed, who have been given that grace. To understand your amazing grace that, that saved us and that grace that leads us home. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Jambrew Anglican Church. For more information, head to jambrewanglican.com.